Thank you for those kind words, David. I certainly don't feel like I have earned those praises. <coughs> the real power behind the throne sits over there. <laughs> and Tony, she was never. Where's Tony? She was never taking notes when you saw her there. She was just writing down things to remind me about later, about <laughs> my tie wasn't straight or whatever. You know. Just a couple of things before I start. Um, a lot of you people here know Rosita, was a member here for many years, now is uh, living in a retirement village down at, uh, at Caboolture. Uh, she's in hospital at the moment. She went in on uh, Thursday night with uh, hypertension. And she's been suffering from a lung infection for about a year now. And she's been on this long course of antibiotics trying to solve this problem. And uh, so it hasn't been a really good year for her. And uh, as I said, she went to hospital on Thursday night, Redcliffe. Uh, so keep her in your prayers. And also, uh, if you've got nothing to do, tomorrow night or Tuesday night or Wednesday night and you just want a little lazy drive in the country, come down to uh, Caboolture. Uh, we're having a mission and uh, Daniel is going to be our speaker. And uh, that's uh, 7.30, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday night. Uh, and the theme of the mission is Advance Australia Where? And uh, it's about all the societal changes that are happening and uh, what God's word has to say about those things. And uh, so hopefully we can uh, stir the troops up, uh, get some interest from the community to uh, come along and hear about what the Bible has to say about uh, the changes in our society. My topic uh, as part of the theme is uh, reconciliation which essentially is what the church age is all about, reconciliation. Of course, when you use that word, any word starting with R-E involves the concept of back or again, you know? And so reconciliation <coughs> involves the concept or presupposes the concept there's been some sort of breach, some sort of break, uh, either in a friendship or in a covenant. Oftentimes, of course, in our human interaction, there are all sorts of breakdowns in communication and breakdowns in friendships and so forth. And sometimes reconciliation is achieved by uh, this side making some sort of uh, concession and that side making some sort of con concession. And, and, and the two come together again and, and they work out a basis on which to do this. Well, that's not the case uh, between God and man. The disturbance, the thing that upset the relationship between God and man was not on God's side. It was wholly and solely on the part of man. It's your fault, my fault, certainly not God's fault. Matthew chapter 5, 23 and 24 it makes sense to me. It's talking about reconciliation between two people. It says, 
If you bring your gift to the altar and you remember your brother has something against you, leave there your gift and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. That makes sense to me. You've done something to offend your brother, then hey, the onus is on you to uh, go and, and make things right. You did the wrong, you go and make it right. But Matthew 18, 15, does it make as much sense to you? He says, if your brother shall trespass against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone, and if he shall hear you, you've gained your brother. You know, I read that and I think, hey, hang on. The balance is not right there. Shouldn't the person who does the offending take the first step to make things right? Shouldn't the person who's been offended, shouldn't they assume the high moral ground and say, I'm not coming to them. They did wrong to me. They're going to come to me. Isn't that the way we often think? Well, as it turns out in the history of man, we, man, the offenders, in the main, we never ever sought to make reparation. We never ever sought to patch up the breach between us and God. We never ever sought reconciliation. Man as a whole is quite prepared to simply just stand and live independent of God. Stand apart from God. And so the psalmist sums up the world in these words. There are none who seek after God. Isn't that a sad state of affairs? It's an overstatement, but nonetheless, it's a true statement. And so it's God who sets out to effect reconciliation. This enmity of man towards God, it just grieves. Don't ever think God has a heart of stone. God feels things. God gets upset. God gets sad gets angry, gets happy. And the enmity of man disturbs him. He doesn't like it. He wants it to end. He wants it to be over. He wants it to be like it used to be. When man and God had perfect harmony, perfect fellowship in the Garden of Eden. Well, he wanted to try and win the hearts of the offenders by offering free forgiveness. Now, he visited the earth. Now, God's always visited the earth. Jeremiah 5, Jeremiah 9, he talks about God visited for sin. And that's a pretty ominous sort of visit. That's when God comes to punish there are other forms of visits. In Jeremiah 27, God says, I will visit you in Babylon and I will bring you back to the land. That's a different kind of visit. That's a nice visit, isn't it? Yeah. But the visit for reconciliation was to be different. Most of you have heard of Queen Victoria. <coughs> and she lost Prince Albert 
around about the same time as a good friend of her, Mrs. Tullock, lost her husband. So they were both widows at the same time. Not long after Mrs. Tullock had lost her husband, uh, the Queen paid a visit to her house. And Mrs. Tullock was actually lying on the bed resting and then somebody came in and said, the Queen is here. And so she, she hastened to, to get out of the bed to, to curtsy before the Queen and the Queen stopped her and said, no, 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 no. She said, I haven't come here today as a queen to her subject. She says, I have come here today as one woman who has lost a husband to another woman who has lost a husband. And so we read in John chapter 3 and verse 17 Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world. We'd already done a good job of that. It's a different sort of a visit. He came into the world that the world through him might be saved. And you know, by the time the world got to the time of Jesus, it had pretty, pretty much worn itself out with attempts by law and philosophy to be able to solve all the world's problems and achieve man's eternal aspirations. Something went away. Sorry, Karen, I hope I didn't break that. <clears throat> Brett must have failed it up, I think. <laughs> But law and philosophy, they'd had their day, they'd had their try. And the Greeks seek after wisdom and the Jews seek after a sign. But none of those things did the job. The world was thirsty, the world was hungry. There's got to be something out there that's going to do us a better job than this. And so God pays a visit to reconcile himself with the world. And reconciliation basically involves three things. First of all, it involved the reconciliation between Jew and Gentile. In Ephesians uh, chapter 2, you may want to just open your text there. <clears throat> Beginning in verse 11, he says, Wherefore remember that you being in time past Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who sometimes were afar off, are made near by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace who has made both one, and has broken down the middle wall of petition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of two one new man, so making peace. The Old Testament, and we mentioned this yesterday, the Old Testament required that the Jew be separated from the Gentile. But not like it transpired. 
as uh, Isaiah uses the phrase, which we continue to use, the Jew had this holier-than-thou attitude towards the nations. They looked down their noses at them. Uh, they thought that they were better than them. They forgot that they're just flesh and blood, just like Gentiles were flesh and blood, and the only reason they were who they were was because they had a forefather called Abraham, and God was keeping a promise to Abraham, and it was not because of their goodness. But they despised the nations, and the nations, of course, didn't like this very much. And their hatred for the nations is well attested to in the ancient writings. For example, Tacitus, he says, talking about Jews, uh, they are faithful to obstinacy. They're merciful towards themselves, but towards all others are actuated by the most irreconcilable hatred. Juvenal, he said, they will not show the road to one who was not of their religion, nor will they lead the thirsty person to the common spring if they're uncircumcised. In even one of their own number. We know him well, the Apostle Paul. He's quite blunt when he writes about his own countrymen in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 15. He says, they both killed the Lord Jesus, their own prophets, they've persecuted us, they please not God, and they're contrary to all men. Isn't that a slamming indictment of your own people? But that's not what God intended. In Isaiah 43 and verse 10, he says, You are my witnesses. And, and, and there's various levels of this. But the point I want to make is that one of the reasons that God had them in the world was that they were to show to the world what a godly, righteous life is. And he wanted their life to reflect well before the nations on him. You think that's a tough ask, but that's the, that's the ask that we have, isn't it? When you wear the name Christian, what's all that about? That means I'm a follower, I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. I am to reflect Jesus Christ to the world. People are supposed to look at me and say, ah, that's what God wants us to live like. And I know people can be quite unkind and super critical and all the rest of it, and we just have to live with that. But essentially, one of the reasons that we are to live the way we live is so that the world gets a glimpse of what a righteous life is. But these people, they misunderstood all of that. And so the Roman world, well, the whole ancient world really began to hate them. And because of them, Paul says, the name of God is blasphemed amongst the Gentiles. And that's why some of the Gentiles had problems with the gospel because they thought this is just another sect of that despised Judaism. You know? They had to live in the world but not be of the world, just like us. And we've got to live in the world and march to the beat of a different drum but we've got to rub shoulders with the people of the world. And we've got to love the people of the world. Is that a tall ask? I guess it is. You know, it's nice when we're here, isn't it? Yeah, it's nice. I remember 
when, I, when we went to Townsville, I had to get a job and I worked in Bunnings. And uh, that was a big change for me. Because when I worked here in my office, nobody swore in my office. <laughs> and I had to get used to that. Going to work every day and, and just working with workmates. Uh, uh, it wasn't the same as being in church. <laughs> Uh, and it's nice when you're together and you're people of like mind and so forth but hey you know we've got to get out there and we've got to move amongst the peoples of the world and we've got to love them and show them what a good life is and who the saviour is so God gets to the point of course in the scheme where he has to dissolve this separation between Jew and Gentile and the thing of course that caused the separation was the law Jews had the law, Gentiles didn't. Hence it became a barrier. And so he tore down the law, took away the barrier. And you know that, that's the way it is. Sometimes when you build a good building, you've got to put up scaffolding. And the scaffolding, it's obscuring the finished product a lot of the time, but it's absolutely essential to the putting up of the building. But when the building's finished, that scaffolding comes down. And so it is with the law. Many of the Jews, of course, resisted that. Because, you see, if that happens, we have lost our number one status. That means we're going to be on the same level as the Gentile. Oh, and a lot of them, they fought against that. And they had to be dragged, kicking and screaming to the realisation that, hey, Jew and Gentile are exactly the same. And you remember they had that conference in Acts 15? To try and get this thing nutted out once and for all. I had an old valiant once. And we were going down to a lectureship in Sydney and uh, we decided to go down through Dubbo where Uncle Stumpy used to live. And, we were just getting into Uncle Stubby's just outside of Dubbo and uh, the poor old girl was getting a bit hot and the uh, thermostat housing and that may mean something to some of you but I'm sorry if I'm confusing some of you it's a little thing on top of the engine that holds the thermostat and it's usually made out of aluminium and over the years of course the aluminium corrodes away and that it developed a hole in it and it was just leaking water. So Uncle Stumpy had a look around his uh, farm and uh, he says, oh, there's a bit of black, black plastic here. So we wrapped a bit of black plastic around the thermostat housing, slipped the radiator hose back over it and he says, that'll get you into town to uh, get a new housing. So the next morning went into Dubbo and I had plans, I'll go into Dubbo, I'll, I'll get the housing and uh, I'll just take a screwdriver and a socket set with me and uh, I'll just park out the front of the shop there and I'll get the new housing and put it on and we'll be away. But you know, I come out of the shop, I was served very quickly and the motor's still hot and I thought, nah, I'll wait till I get back to the farm. So we went back to the farm and I was going to do it but the kids and mum, you know, they all wanted to move. So I thought, well, I'll change it at morning tea down the road somewhere. Because they checked it, they hadn't lost any water. Morning tea comes somewhere on the road to Sydney and uh, 
same problem. The motor's still hot, and I didn't want to mess with the hot water and all the rest of it. So I thought, it's still hanging in there. We'll do it at lunchtime. So we stopped for lunch. and Well, to cut a long story short, I drove all the way to Sydney. I drove all the way back to Toowoomba. And for the next year, that thermostat housing sat in my boot. <laughs> I'm sorry, Bob. <laughs> Bob's a purist. He wouldn't have done that. <laughs> but I hung on to this old bit of black plastic wrapped around there and it did the job for a year. Paul, with a heavy heart, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, he talked about the Jews and he said... <coughs> You know, as they read Moses and so forth, this is as like as if there's a veil over their heart and they can't see the end to which Moses was pointing and also the prophets. And to this day, Jewish people still driving around with that bit of black plastic, not knowing there's something better. Can't see the end of it. But in Jesus Christ, neither circumcision avails anything nor uncircumcision. Neither male, neither female, neither bond, neither free, doesn't matter. Status is not an issue. There had to be, of course, not only reconciliation between Jew and Gentile, there had to be reconciliation between man and God. He puts Jew and Gentile on the same footing and as Ephesians 2.16 says, he reconciled them both in one body by the cross. 2 Corinthians 5 is actually the first time chronologically that Paul uses the term reconciliation. Verse 18 of 2 Corinthians 5, he actually describes the gospel or the New Testament, he calls it, this is actually a ministry of reconciliation. Interesting way of viewing it, isn't it? We often, probably more, more often than not, we talk about going and preaching the gospel, sharing the gospel. And that's fine. It is good news. But he says you can also call it a ministry of reconciliation. Now, if you've got an old King James, like I do, in Job chapter 9, verse 32 and 33, Job, of course, he didn't have a correct handle on the situation, but it felt like that he and God were at loggerheads because of his suffering. He didn't know that he was suffering because God was defending him, defending his good name. And he says down there uh, I think at verse 32 King James uses the term daysman which probably doesn't mean a thing to anybody old English expression but it carries the idea of a go-between and so he paints this picture he says I would like somebody a daysman, he calls it in the King James, a go-between to lay his hand on God and lay his hand on me and bring us together and stop all this. You know? 
But that's what God did with Jesus Christ. That's what he did with Jesus Christ. He came up with a daysman, a reconciler, an arbitrator, somebody who would take the two groups and bring them together again. Now, verse 19 of 2 Corinthians 5, he makes this point. He says, God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. Now, in certain quarters and from time to time, you'll come across people who have a concept that almost like a two-God concept, that the God of the Old Testament, he's a bad God. God of the New Testament, he's a good God. God of the Old Testament, he's always angry. He's mean-spirited, you know, and he's always on the boil and he's always furious and, and you know, uh, it's probably a bad illustration, but you remember uh, Crocodile Dundee pacifying the, the water buffalo? And they kind of create this picture, uh, this, uh, picture of there's Jesus and he's pacifying the Father. And that's so wrong. There was one man who came up with a canon of the New Testament many, many years ago in which basically he eliminated any book in the New Testament that had anything to do with the Old Testament. So they got rid of most of it. The canon of Marcion it was called. Because he just thought that God of the Old Testament, he's a bad egg. But uh, God of the New Testament, oh he turned over a new leaf. He's a good guy. That's so wrong. So wrong. He says, God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself. Then in verse 20, he speaks of the invitation. He doesn't say, uh, be saved or save yourselves from this wicked generation or obey the gospel. He speaks of, uh, speaks of it in terms of, be reconciled to God. The law had to go for this reason as well, not just to simply dissolve the separation between Jew and Gentile. It had to go for other reasons as well. One is because, and this is important, it couldn't grant righteousness. It was never designed to. And our Jewish friends need to understand this. Some of our denominational friends need to understand this. It was weak through the flesh, Paul says in Romans chapter 8 and verse 3. He says it effectively becomes an instrument of condemnation. Two ways of going to heaven. One way is to live perfectly. You up for that? Well, if you can't do that, there's only one other way. And that's if you get somebody who can be a reconciler. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 10 is very blunt. Cursed is everyone who does not keep everything written in the law to do it. You see, the law is like a broken record. Uh, you young people don't know what a record is, do you? You old parents, you, you tell them about these things. When you used to buy your, your vinyls. Your 33s and your little small ones, the little 78s. 
Yeah. Al will remember that. Al will remember before that. <laughs> but you know what used to happen? They'd get scratches. And the record's going around and around and it just keeps sticking on this scratch, you know? And it just keeps playing the same bars of the same song over and you've got to go and give it a little nudge <laughs> to move it on. Well, the law was like that. They played the law and the law just had this refrain, you're a sinner, 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 you're a sinner. Get the picture? And that's on purpose. God wanted them to hear that. You're a sinner. You're a sinner. You're... Because he wanted them to get to the point where they said, all right, I confess I'm a sinner, but now what? Now what? You've proved to me I'm a sinner. I get it. Well, where do I go? Is there an answer? And of course God would smile at that point and say, yeah. He says, you're right where I want you to be right now. I want you to understand you cannot save yourself. You need a saviour. You need a reconciler. Many people missed the point today, as did the Jews. Just ask people this time, sometimes, uh, this question, and, and I often do this, I'll say to people, if you were to die today, and you were to stand before God in judgment, what would God say? You know, and the common answers all betray a lack of understanding of reality. The common answers revolve around ideas about how good I am. Well, I, I, I'm a pretty good bloke. You know, I, I mow my lawn and I, I don't beat up my wife too much and I, I'm paying my taxes and I go to work and uh, I've never been to jail and I've never shot anybody and, and uh, yeah, so by default I should go to heaven. Wouldn't make much sense for me to go to hell, that's for sure. I've got no idea. have no idea of the enormity of sin. They have no concept of all of a holy God who is offended by sin. Have no concept at all of the great gulf that exists between man and God because of sin. It's ignorance. And we need to appreciate that these people are ignorant. And they, they need some help to understand reality. They don't understand how bad sin is. When we come to the gospel or the ministry of reconciliation, because it's different, salvation in Christ does not minimize sin. It does not gloss over it. It does not paint it, you know, in the best possible picture, in, in, in light shades of grey rather in black as it is. It meets sin head on, deals with it, you know, pays for it with the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. <coughs> Excuse me. Habakkuk, in chapter 1 of uh, his little book, he talks about the holiness of God. He says, God cannot even look upon iniquity. That's how holy God is. 
But when we come to the book of Colossians, the first chapter, and I hope you're familiar with this passage, but in verse 21, you who sometime were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now has he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy, unblameable and unreprovable in his sight if you continue in the faith, grounded and settled and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel. Isn't that marvellous? Some of you, I'm sure, have been following the, the bushfires that New South Wales has got a lot, we've got a lot, and uh, been a lot of property lost. Uh, but you've heard of the term backburning and so forth. Because the safest thing to do if you're in a bushfire is to go and stand where the fire has been. Go and stand where it's been. Don't stand in a fire break. Because see, the fire can't come back through there. There's nothing for it to burn. And that's how this works. Christ has endured the punishment for our sins. So I don't have to endure that. I stand where the fire has been. I stand on the virtues of his sacrifice. I put my faith and confidence in what he did for me. And thirdly, in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 20, he says, Having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. Interesting statement, isn't it? Reconcile all things unto himself, whether they're things in heaven or things on earth. Some people teach this to mean universal salvation. Doesn't teach that. If you believe that, that what Jesus did means everybody's going to go to heaven regardless of what they do in life, you've got to throw the rest of the Bible away. Can't mean that. The focus of the Old Testament was with one nation, that's uh, the Jews. The focus of the New Testament, of course, is universal. Man-made distinctions of race and identity and boundaries and class. Uh, they're all swept aside with the universal kingdom of the Son of God. New Testament is the key to understanding the Old Testament. You cannot go higher than Jesus. You cannot go higher than the New Testament. There is no better covenant that's going to come along sometime in the future. There is no Mormon covenant that was designed to come along and take away from the covenant of Jesus Christ. We've got people today who are still waiting for Jesus to accomplish the things that he came to accomplish the first time. Every time there's a hiccup in the Middle East, they look over there and say, Jesus is coming soon. John the Baptist, and we've talked about this in Matthew 3 verse 1, he came preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Jesus said the same thing in Matthew 4, 17. He also said the same thing, in fact, more emphatically in, in uh, Mark chapter 1 and verse 15. He says, the time is fulfilled. <laughs> Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So did Jesus get it wrong? Did John get it wrong? If they did, then they're false prophets. We all pack up. Well, we have lunch first, but then go home. <laughs> 
They didn't get it wrong. You know? J.D. Bales wrote a book many years ago about Acts 2, and he called it the hub of the Bible. Not a bad description. It is the hub of the Bible. That's when the kingdom of God became apparent amongst men. When the gospel was preached for the first time publicly after the resurrection of Jesus. The first mass conversions into the name of Christ after the death of Jesus. And when Jesus was in his ministry talking to Peter and he said, uh, who do you say I am? And he says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Peter wasn't just talking for himself there, by the way. No preeminence given to Peter. John 6.69 says, we all believe this. All of the apostles. It's just Peter, he was the first one to get his mouth in gear most of the time. But Jesus says, I will build my church and I'll give unto you the keys of the kingdom. That's what the church is. It's the kingdom. What do keys do? Keys give entrance, don't they? They unlock a door. Allow you to pass through. If you got into the church using the keys of the kingdom, then you pick the lock. Unless the church and the kingdom are one and the same thing. And they are. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1. Now are we the children of God. Jesus, according to Matthew 28 and verse 18, he has all authority in heaven and on earth. And that means this. Everything in heaven and in earth, whether it's obedient or disobedient, whether it's carnal or spiritual, whether it's living or material, are subject to his control and to his use. He says something very similar in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse uh, 10, where he says that it was God's good pleasure to sum up all things in Jesus Christ. Uh, how many hats does Jesus wear? I don't know. There's a bunch. He's the saviour. He's the sacrifice. He's the judge. He's the treasury of wisdom and knowledge. He's the mediator. He's the builder. He's the teacher. He's the creator. He's the sustainer. He's the seed. He's the head. He's the king. He's the high priest. He's the mystery. He's the purchaser. He's the fulfillment. I think I've got most of them. That's quite a few hats to wear, isn't it? All things are summed up in Jesus Christ. And so Jesus, he reigns with everything subject to him. And that's why Romans 8.28 is true. And as was pointed out to us, it doesn't say that all things are good. It just says all things. Whether they be good or bad, all things work together for good. Christ has the power to take good things and bad things and out of those things weave the ultimate goodness. Paul's very bold in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 21 to 23, where he tells the Christians there, he says, all things are ours. Then he goes on to talk about some of those things. 
And in that little list there, he says, you know, life is ours. Then he says, but death's ours too. You know, that great enemy, death. He says, that's, that's yours. It has its purposes. God, Jesus, uses death for the purposes that he has. And it's all good. It's all good. We live in a time where there's no more types and shadows. There's no more priests running around with animal sacrifices and typical high priests approaching that awful darkness behind the great curtain that separated the holy of holies from the holy place. No, there's no more endless generations of preparation, but rather we have a high priest who's already offered the sacrifice of himself. He's sitting on the right hand of the Father in heaven, and we who are the priests have access to God through him. There's no more angelic inquisitiveness as to what is God up to, as Peter talks about in 1 Peter 1, or 2 Peter 1. What's God up to? Mucking around with this world and these creatures on it. They know now. You see? The mystery has been revealed according to Ephesians 3 verses 4 to 6. There was a time when Satan could come before God and legitimately sort of point the finger and say, God, Abraham just lied there. Why are you justifying him? And God would say something like, well, you just wait and see how I can justify Abraham. David just committed adultery and murder. And you justify him. How can you do that? You just wait and see. I got it covered. It's all sorted. You see, God can... God can draw a check on his own bank. That's all right. You can trust that. And they trusted in that. But now, of course, he has no leg to stand on because it is apparent how God can do that. The price has been paid in Jesus Christ. And so Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14 says that Satan is a defeated enemy. Oh, he's still alive. He's still wandering around the place, having a go at us. But ultimately, if we're faithful to Jesus Christ, he can't touch us. We are the untouchables, according to 1 John chapter 5 and verse 18. We need to stop. I said before that the gospel invitation is really the invitation to be reconciled to God. Picture this. Here's God. And Jesus is standing between God there and you here. And Jesus has spoken to the Father and he has said to the Father, Father, would you accept my blood as reparation, as atonement, as payment for the sins of the world. And you what the Father says, yes I will. Absolutely. And the Father has bowed his head. And the Son has got his hand on the Father's head. And the Son has his other hand raised here. And you're standing here. 
What he wants to do is put his hand on your bowed head and bring the two together. That's what it's all about. But he's not going to put his hand on your head if you don't want him to. He respects your free will. And he's not going to put his hand on your head if you don't bow your head. We call that repentance. Change your mind. Submit. You see, the price has been paid. The work has been done. It's just our submission that's the problem. But that's what Jesus does. That's what he wants to do. If anybody here this morning is not reconciled to God, not at peace with God, still living in your sins, your sins still hanging over you like a great cloud and the penalty that goes with that, that can all be taken away. Jesus puts his hand on the Father's head, puts his hand on your head, and he brings the two together. You believe in Jesus? That he's the Son of God? That he died for you? Congratulations. But remember the demons believe all that. You prepared to bow your head. That's the hard part, isn't it? Submit. Repent. Change my mind. Do a screaming Yui. Instead of running away from God, turn back to God. You're prepared to commit with your mouth what you actually believe in your heart about Jesus. There's only one thing that stands between you and reconciliation with the Father. And that's to bury your old man. Bury your old man in the watery grave of baptism because something special happens there. It's not physical, it's spiritual. Jesus shed his blood in his death and baptism is a burial into death. And in that burial, the blood of Christ washes away your sins and you come up out of that watery grave all your sins washed away and the hand of Jesus is on your head and his other hand is on the father and this friendship there's family there's peace and there's sonship you're a son or a daughter of the father you won't get a better offer than that most marvellous invitation that the world has to offer. We're going to sing a song. If you want to avail yourself of reconciliation with the Father, won't you come to the front as we stand and as we sing?